The Book Tour, Episode 23, Romeo Invites Me for Breakfast. Perfect moments take us by surprise, and right now everything is just fine and dandy. I'm in New York, a city I haven't seen in many years and heading for the Center for Jewish History, where I've been invited to talk about my book, Finding Home in the Footsteps of the Jewish Fuskayers. It's quite an honor, one I never would have imagined 60 years ago when I first came here. It was an inauspicious beginning. I was a 17-year-old Canadian runaway, expelled from yet another high school, and determined to try my luck in the big city. With five dollars in my pocket, wearing good shoes and a beautiful blue and turquoise wool coat, what could go wrong? My bus arrived in the late evening, and I strolled over to Times Square, thrilled by the lights, the noise, the sight of oddballs, cranks, and weirdos. When I tired of aimless wandering, I snuck into a building curled up in the back corridor and slept soundly. Optimism can do that. In the morning, I plucked off shiny brown and yellow cockroaches, found the address of a modelling school, come agency in a phone book, and set out. I didn't for one minute doubt my front-page success. Va-va-va-voom, said a red-faced loser who watched me strut by. However, the woman at the agency was unconvinced. Tall, featureless, hair pulled back tight, she weighed and measured me, looked for flaws. Your face is wrong, your nose, well, perhaps surgery, your feet are too large, and so are your hands, we can't use you. Of course, you can sign up for our modelling classes. Because my hands and feet will get smaller? She pursed her red, wet-looked lips. Come back when you can afford us. There are many ways to skin a cat. Back then, banks were hiring pages at $50 a week. I went into the First National City Bank, took tests created for the simple-minded. You've done so well, said the blonde woman in personnel. She looked truly surprised. You didn't even finish high school. I was immediately hired to deliver folders, to file, and to use the pneumatic post. Dull stuff indeed. In a section run by a racist misogynist, Mr. Steerberger. His job consisted of squeezing his corpulence into a chair, sweating, jeering, intimidating, humiliating, and dividing people into hostile, warring clans. I found a room to rent in a five-story brownhouse on West 53rd Street, just off Broadway. From the outside, it was nothing much to look at. The basement was a steamy Chinese laundry. The first, second, and third floors were condemned, each dirty window barred with a whitewashed X. The fourth floor was home to transients, transparent men who slumped silently up the stairs as if ashamed of their failure. And the fifth was the domain of Mr. Taylor and Sally, his long-time paramour. He, a shifty, fast-talking charmer in an old brown fedora, reeked of dishonesty. 
Chi, a stumpy, square-shaped woman with a heavily painted face, was suspicious and nosy. Do you realise it's quite a privilege to rent a room in this building, Mr Taylor said to me. This was once the old Barrymore residence, and each Barrymore had one floor. How it must have looked back then, a real palace. It's because of our attachment to the theatre that Sally and I live here. We were both actors in vaudeville in the old days. My room had moulded ceilings, a tattered red turkey carpet, a large bad bed, a dressing table, and a boarded-up fireplace with a surround of sculpted, dirt-encrusted, twisting flowers. On either side of the fireplace were two high bay windows. One gave out to a brick wall three feet away, the other to a dark apartment window. I pictured a handsome man living in that place, a Romeo, for I craved a romance with Shakespearean intensity. Outside my room was a long, dark corridor, icy and dusty. At one end was a tiny kitchen. Further along, an out-of-service grill-work elevator was home to cooing pigeons. In a bathroom with ancient fixtures and a claw-footed tub, there was no hot water. Not for the moment, said Mr Taylor, leaving me to think that things might change one day, although why would they? There was no heating either, and no possibility of using a heater. The wiring was too ancient for that. There was also no key to the door of my room. None of the doors have keys, said Sally, somewhat huffily. I did wonder if Mr Taylor and Sally were legitimate tenants or squatters. Not that it mattered. Mr Taylor, although he had his own room, didn't live on the premises. It was Sally who collected rent money, observed comings and goings via her half-open door, and popped into the hallway each time anyone entered through the main entrance. She was always hoping it would be Mr Taylor. Perhaps he'll come by today, she'd say. Won't it be nice if he does? Everyone adores Mr. Taylor. We were in the theatre together, you know. But Mr. Taylor, elusive, cheery, passed through infrequently, and he never tarried. Business waits for no man, he'd say. The things we have to do to make money. Nothing like the old days, nothing like the theatre world. The nostalgic twist to his mouth conjured up crowded dressing rooms, dog acts, magicians, melodramas, the whiff of grease paint and sweat-soaked costumes. All that was left of that life were his battered fedora and Sally's painted mean. A large room at the end of the corridor was occupied by Gail, a pregnant woman from California and her exhausted husband, he, finishing medical studies, was never around much. She, a handsome, dark-haired woman with freckles and blue eyes, had a great warm smile. I would have liked to become friends with her, but Sally discouraged me. You keep away from her. She does very strange things. Like what? Glancing down the hall to make certain no one was listening, she whispered, In the middle of the night when we're all sleeping... She sneaks out of her room, goes into the kitchen, takes spoons out of the cutlery drawer, and leaves them in the sink. What for? To drive me crazy. 
I admitted it was a very odd thing to do. Perhaps she's sleepwalking. Oh, no, I don't believe that. I think she's not right in the head. I've seen black and blue marks all over her arms. Her husband beats her, you know. I hear them at night, hear them through the walls. Her ringed, beady eyes in the white-painted mask glittered. She isn't normal, not just because of the beatings. Well, she seems nice to me. Well, if she's nice, why does she keep messing around with my spoons? Is that what nice people do? But Sally was also an odd character. I suspected she came into my room when I was absent, for nothing was ever in its correct place when I returned. And from the turned pages of my journal, I understood that all I wrote was read. To make certain my suspicions were correct, I began placing almost invisible pieces of string between the door frame and the door each morning. In the evening, they were always missing. How did I know it was Sally? One day she slipped up, mentioned the titles of the books I happened to be reading. One icy evening, Gail invited me into her very beautiful room for a drink and some gossip. It was warm and cheery in there, thanks to a small gas stove and a tiny decorated Christmas tree. That's Sally, said Gail. She drives me crazy. Whenever I go out, she comes in here and pokes around. She even had the nerve to mention that my Christmas presents were very lovely. Do you realize what that means? That she unwrapped them, looked at them, then wrapped them up again. Can you imagine anyone doing that? She comes into my room, too. I know she does. Horrible, nosy woman. Still, I said, you are driving her mad with the spoons. Me? Gail stared. The way you keep putting her spoons into the sink at night. But she told me you were the one who did that. She says you're slightly crazy. I was embarrassed for you, and I didn't know how to ask you to stop. For revenge, we decided to spy on Mr. Taylor. His long absences, his shifty manner, his secretive air. What did he really get up to? We waited until one Saturday afternoon when Sally went out shopping. Then, giggling, we crept down the corridor, opened Mr. Taylor's door. Caught in the half-gloom were a narrow, dirty bed, many cardboard boxes, and a table heaped high with photos. What sort of photos? Pornographic photos, demonstrating every possibility, every desire, every complication, and every sort of participant. Hundreds of them, slipping from their stacks, toppling to the floor. And in the cardboard boxes, pornographic magazines. So, this was what real actors did. One morning, when I pulled back the curtains of the bay windows in my room, what did I see? A handsome, blonde man standing in the window opposite. Romeo. Finally. When he saw me, his eyes lit up. He pulled up his sash window. I did the same. Wasn't my dream of romance about to come true? I wondered who was living so close to me, he said. My name is Ernest, Ernest Austin. I'm an actor. Well, 
Perhaps he wasn't quite so handsome as the man in my dreams. A slit of a mouth, small eyes, an oatmeal face. I'm in a play at the moment. Would you like to come and see it? I'll give you a ticket. Why not come up here for breakfast tomorrow morning? Tell me what you like to eat. Steak, smoked salmon. Do you like champagne? You see, a glamorous beginning to romance. The next morning I dressed nicely, smeared blue shadow on my lids, clattered down to the street, turned the corner, raced up the four flights of stairs, knocked. Ernest's door sprung open. He had been waiting for me. But thoughts of true love and romance vanished instantly. Buff naked, his little eyes in the mushy face glowed. His pecker, upright and alert, waved from side to side with anticipation. Come in, come in, hurry. I turned, raced back down the stairs. Come back, he shouted, come back. Come back, I won't harm you, come back. He began to follow me, then realized he couldn't. Come back, I thought we were having breakfast. I'll get dressed, I promise. Come back, please come back. I didn't. Why would I? Romeo had mutated into Lothario.